Hello, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne, and at the moment it is being broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. If you were in Melbourne over the month of September, you would have been aware of a lot of disruption in the public transport. Both trains and trams were out as the Rail, Bus and Tram Union, the RBTU, took protected action over wages and conditions against private operators Yarra Trams and Metro. On today's program, we report on why another week of industrial action didn't go ahead. It is business as usual at our universities as we hear from the RMIT National Tertiary Education Union President, Dr Melissa Slee. Vocational teachers at RMIT are taking 24-hour action on Thursday the 8th of October because their boss wants more for less again, despite record profits. But first, let's not forget the wages scandal racking 7-Eleven. It seems to me that the business model will only work for the franchisee if they underpay or overwork employees. I think the fact that so many people are not being paid by Australian standards undermines the whole foreign guest worker uh, laws and regulations that we have. The general understanding, I believe, by the Australian community is that we are prepared to have foreign guest workers providing that Australian standards are conformed with. But if they're not conformed with, if there is underpayment, or if they're first forced to work longer hours than are permitted under the guest worker arrangements, then uh, it casts uh, a shadow over and puts in a very bad light the foreign guest worker laws. So this really needs to be cleaned up if having foreign guest workers is to continue. That was the voice of Alan Fells talking about the 7-Eleven wages situation. He's the former ACCC chairman and apparently, as a student, a member of the Liberal Party. When the American-based franchise 7-Eleven came to Australia in 1977, it decimated the family-run corner shop. The flash new 24-hour store was the new favourite. Run on a franchise system with centralised buying and wages arrangements. Franchisees get 43% of the take and central office take the lion's share of 57%. When the company bought the last of the mobile petrol stations and incorporated petrol in 7-Eleven's core business, the profit share was even more uneven with the franchisee getting one cent per litre. It was apparently news to central office that there was massive exploitation of overseas students on visas maintaining the empire. This is despite the work of people from Unite or by Michael Fraser, staff advocate who notified the company in 2012. Now that they have been exposed on national TV and there is a Senate inquiry, Russ Withers, 
major shareholder, has maintained all underpaid staff will be paid. In damage control, Russ Withers, Chairman, Warren Wilmont, CEO, and Natalie Delbo, General Operations Manager, all resigned. And now a man, Michael Smith, on the board for 16 years and blissfully unaware of the wages dishonesty, is now at the helm. There are going to be franchisee meetings from October the 8th to 12th in major cities across Australia to re-establish the contract between central office and franchisees, which will be fair to both shareholders and franchise holders. The four shareholders are Mr Withers and his wife and his sister and her husband. Meanwhile, Employment Minister Michaela Cash says the government doesn't approve of worker exploitation or underpayment. Good. Good to hear. But she is all for industry self-regulation. Stick Together spoke to Anthony Mayne, Victorian Secretary of Unite, for an update on what it means for the workers involved in this invidious piece of big business gouging. This has been going on for a long time, hasn't it? Well, yeah, definitely it has. I mean, uh, from Unite's point of view, we've been involved in it since 2008 and we definitely know that it's been happening since well before that. Um, Yeah, we were the first people to bring it to the attention of the media and the the authorities and all the rest of it when we had a dispute with a a company down in Geelong in 2008-2009. And yeah, we proposed, you know, at that point in time that this was not an isolated incident. But, um, you know, this is systemic wage theft that was going on through this half-pay scam. So, yeah, you're right, it has been going on for quite some time. And it's really interesting because it is actually intimately connected to another system that's been created, which is uh, getting overseas students to come to the country and pay for rather large amounts of money, I'll have to say, for educational opportunity. So it's a sort of, it's a double bind, isn't it, for these people? Oh, look, absolutely. International students in this country are treated like absolute cash cows. As you say, on the one hand, they're forced to pay exorbitant fees for usually and often um, you know, inferior quality education. But at the same time, while they're here, often with next to no support from their families at home, you know, they've been sent over and they've got to try and make ends meet. Um, they're then forced into low-paid jobs where this 20-hour rule visa condition where they're not allowed to work more than 20 hours a week is used against them and basically they're held over a barrel whereby they're offered such low pay that they're forced inadvertently to breach that rule, sometimes only by a couple of hours a week and then that gives the employer the, the power over over the worker to say if you complain, if you ask for more, if you go to the authorities, well we'll dob you in to immigration and you'll be deported and when you've got a family, say from India or whatever that's spent tens of thousands of dollars to get one of their sons or daughters over to Australia to try and get a university degree or a, or a TAFE qualification. Um, it's not the most likely thing. So that's why we've seen you know, huge intimidation um, and you know, bullying that's been taking place amongst international students. And it's one of the reasons why, even still to this day, the full extent of this hasn't come out. I know that there's been all the revelations in the mainstream press, but still full extent of it's not known because people are still scared to come out, which is one of the reasons why we're arguing for an amnesty for all those those students at this point in time.
Let's have a look at the uh, systemic approach uh, of this, this whole thing, uh, and then we'll get to the individual uh, themselves and what, how they have to actually pay for it. I mean, one, you set up a system where they've got to pay very large amounts of money for private education, which they are hoping quite a lot of the time might lead them to permanent residency. Not all the time, but quite often people are looking for permanent residency. There's a system where they're only allowed to work for 20 hours, which actually is possibly impossible for them to be able to maintain because they've got such a large amount of money that they have to find to pay for their fees. So in a sense, the system had been set up which was going to create an illegal employment regime. You're right. There's definitely huge incentives there on every front. I mean, the 20-hour rule is absolutely ridiculous, and we've, for years, since 2008 and nine, since we've been looking at this more closely, we've been arguing that it should be abolished. I mean, people already have conditions on their visa by way of, um, you know, attendance at the courses and, you know, grades and all the rest of it. The 20-hour rule is just used, you know, as you say, to, to, you know, provide an incentive to the employers to rip people off. So we think it should be abolished. I mean, you know, most a lot of courses only take place 26 weeks of the year and um, there's no reason why people shouldn't be able to work for, you know, during their school holidays and all, all the rest of it. So, um, you know, we're arguing for that. That said, there has been students that have said to us, look, we do a couple of Sunday shifts or late night shifts. If we were getting paid the minimum wage, the right rate, and working 20 hours, well, we could probably scrape together... 400 bucks a week, which would be enough for us to get by. But on the you know the current regime, where some of them are being paid as low as um, you know 10 or 12 dollars an hour, um, you know, and then being forced to work for, for 30 hours a week, you know, they're still only making 300 bucks or whatever it might be. So, like most people that we're aware of, would be in favour of only working the 20 hours, but being paid the right rate. To be honest with you, we came across some workers back in 2008 and 9 who were being paid as low as six or seven dollars an hour, and just desperate. Um, you know, maybe their parents had saved up their life savings or mortgaged the house or whatever it might be to send them over, and you know it was sent over with, with you know not two cents to rub together, and they had to get a job to survive. And if that was the only thing that was offered to them, well, in their view, it was probably better than nothing. And it's just absolute the equivalent of modern day slavery. And as you say, it's systemic in the sense that the, the visa conditions um, incentivise it. Um, you know, the franchise model that 7-Eleven has put in place incentivises it. Um, but also, you know, we, we can't ignore the fact that, you know, we see a lot of crocodile tears from the Fair Work Ombudsman over all this. But the truth is they were fully aware of this. Um, when I met with them face-to-face, explained the whole you know, scam to them, and they refused to act. I mean, they're obviously a toothless tiger, but... The idea that they have not been fully aware of the extent of this is just plain wrong, and that they need to be held accountable for what they knew and and their, and their failure to act as well. Well, I guess that's what I was getting at. That uh, people have complained, they've fallen their, on their swords. People, ha- you have gone, Unite has gone to the Fair Work Ombudsman, and it seems extraordinary that all of a sudden. Now people are saying that they are aware of it. Why has it suddenly become such a cause celeb? Well, yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of media about it. And as, as, as you say, um, you know, Unite spoke to the Fair Work Ombudsman personally. We also met with 7-Eleven Management. They also were fully aware of this and, 
um, you know, again, have done nothing about it because you know, at least we know that they've um, been making mega profits out of this. But I think the reason it's come to in, in recent months is because um, independently there was a bloke up in Brisbane and Michael Fraser um, describes himself as a consumer advocate, but he stumbled across this scam separately up there. Um, he got in contact with us and we verified what we knew and that it was happening um, down here in Melbourne, in Geelong, and we knew of instances in Sydney as well. Um, we exchanged a lot of information and he got together with a lawyer friend of his, um, Stuart Levitt, who runs a firm up in, in Sydney, and they um, started the process of, of engaging in a class action in an attempt to try and recover some of the wages of, of these people. And I think that just sparked off a bit more, you know, with with Four Corners and with... The so, using, so using the law... Uh, uh, it, it, using things that uh, the, these corporate interests would recognise as threats. Well, yeah, I think that they were, um, you know, they were keen to get promotion for their class action, and they had, had approached, um, you know, Fairfax and Four Corners about doing a story on this. And Adele Ferguson obviously looked into it, and um, you know, got the information. I met with her as well. Um, she did her investigation and realised that everything that we were saying is true. It is, it is systemic. It is wide-ranging. Um, and, you know, decided to blow it up in the, in the front pages of the Fairfax papers and on Four Corners on that Monday night. And ever since then, it's just set a whole process in train whereby, um, you know, these people have now had the front Senate committees. We've had in the last few days two of the senior bosses uh, of 7-Eleven have had to step down in some, you know, in some capacity. And um, they're under a huge amount of pressure now to um, try, and, try and fix the situation. I mean, I suppose my frustration is that I'm happy that all this has come to light because it's something that we've been saying for many years. But um, from my point of view, the solution to all this is, yeah, let's try and recover the back pay. That's got to be a priority in the here and now. But there needs to be something put in place. And what I mean by that, a regime of union, a union presence in 7-Eleven stores and in other stores like, you know, other franchises like 7-Eleven, to ensure this doesn't happen again because the media attention inevitably will be, you know, the eyes will get taken off this at a certain stage and we need to make sure that there's a, you know, there's a, there's a regime of organisation in place that can continue to monitor this and continue to struggle against any further attempts to, to exploit um, international students or any other workers for that matter. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And when do you want it? And what are you going to do to get it? What are you going to do? You are listening to Stick Together, Workers' Stories and Union News. Over September, rail and tram services shut down in protected actions for wages and conditions in Melbourne. There was to be continued action, but the companies Yarra Trams and Metro went back to the table. There was an in-principle agreement reached between Yarra Trams and negotiations are continuing with Metro. Amadeo De Prano from the RBTU was able to give us an update on the Metro situation. We can say that the, the negotiations have been progressing quite well since um, the industrial action plan for the past week um, was called off and Metro came back to the table and um, the, the government assisted in facilitating some talks which have seen good ground be made. So what you're saying is that before the industrial action, the company was uh, just not prepared to talk properly? 
these negotiations have been going on for about six months now. Um, lots, lots has been, um, lots has been discussed. Lots has been um, somewhat agreed to. Um, there's, there, there have just been several outstanding claims that we've needed to, uh, we've needed to address, and um, and a lot of our membership has just not been willing to accept the terms on which Metro have been willing to um, or have been looking to take it. Um, and so, you know, uh, when, when we've addressed delegates about the state of negotiations, um, they've they've uh, in the past voted unanimously uh, to take this industrial action. Uh, in order to advance their claims and actually be heard in these negotiations, um, and and you know as we, as as we can see now, we're we're actually around the table with Metro, making good making good ground. Um, the um, the workers have uh, done a fantastic job in remaining united, and um, and sending a really strong, clear message to Metro about the fact that. Their wages and their conditions are, are, are serious concerns, and uh, and they must be taken seriously. And so, uh, when do you think you'll be uh, able to announce, uh, say, a positive outcome uh, from these discussions? So the these um, high level discussions have been going on for about the past week now. Um, we were hoping we'd have it tidied up um, earlier than earlier than now. However. Um, progress progress continues to be made, and we keep working closer and closer to an agreement. So, um, so we're, we're optimistic that we'll have something um, in the near future. Now, the rail, tram, and bus union has to deal with uh, more than one company because of the private operators of our public transport system in Victoria. So. Uh, We'll just touch briefly on an agreement that was made with Yarra Trams. So there was a, a what was considered to be a positive outcome from the industrial action with Yarra Trams. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the it, it was it was yet another case of um, of uh, the management crying poor and saying that if they couldn't have these kind of provisions, then they wouldn't be able to. Be, um, wouldn't wouldn't be able to operate in the way that they they plan to operate, um, but that just simply didn't stack up with the uh, the financial reports that um, that they've put out, where they've just posted profit after profit, um, and all we've been asking for is that the workers can retain their conditions, have some certainty in their rostering, and also um, be remunerated for their work um, in a fair and just just manner. I noticed that uh, it's also included introduction of trauma leave, introduction of family violence leave, and increase in parental leave provision. So that was obviously an important. These were important new things that appeared in the uh, agreements. Yeah, absolutely. These these are these are um, these are aspects of the agreement that we've been um, we've been uh, fighting for for a long time and. Um, and what they are going to do is they're going to make a difference to um, to many many workers who 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 do undergo um, a lot of these external pressures and need need that kind of um, support um, from their working environment so that they can even um, um, so yeah so they can they can achieve a good work life balance and um, and and um, 
have, have the support that they need to, um, to continue working through, through adversity. You are with me, Annie McLaughlin, on Stick Together, focusing on union news and workers' stories. Our last piece of information is about strike action called by vocational workers at RMIT, members of the NTEU, National Tertiary Education Union. Melissa Slee, president of the RMIT NTEU branch, explains. RMIT has failed to offer teachers a pay rise for almost two and a half years. Uh, Now they've finally made an offer, but it's equivalent to 5.1% of pay over four years. We should put that into context, shouldn't we, that uh, CPI has increased 12.4%, so it really isn't going to be much help to people. Well, that's exactly right. What it really means is that teachers' wages are going backwards. No pay rise, really. Uh, Their pay is going backwards. RMIT is also insisting on trade-offs, particularly around uh, workloads, uh, they're uh, insisting on taking away some of their non-attendance time. Uh, want more fixed-term contracts and less continuing genuine jobs. They want more casualisation. So, yeah, uh, insulting is the word. I'm not sure that everybody understands how difficult it is to be a teacher. Often people think that being a teacher is a bit of a, a loaf. But in actual fact, it's incredibly difficult and incredibly emotionally draining. And I noticed that some people are being given uh, 24 hours face-to-face time and they're uh, expecting that people's preparation time will be reduced to about half an hour. Uh, That's exactly right. Uh, The difficulty we have is that uh, there's a few things going on. The first is that uh, vocational education teachers used to be TAFE teachers in the old model, which meant um, that a lot of the teachers were teaching apprenticeships. So they've increased the um, time for everyone, including those traditional TAFE-style teachers, but a lot of our uh, vocational education teachers in, at RMIT are actually teaching higher education degrees, uh, and they're being uh, forced to teach it 24 hours a week. A comparison in, amongst academics Teaching intensive academics is about 12 hours a week, so they're doing twice as much. It's a simple matter of mathematics. Uh, Less teachers doing more teaching means, of course, more student income per cost, Uh, and that's the name of the game. Um, It's, uh, you know, how can teachers possibly deliver quality given half an hour of time to prepare? Uh, Having walked around the campus too, it's the stress uh, you talked about emotional labour, that's really true and you can really see teachers straining to continue to deliver quality education uh, in a really stressed environment um, and that's just not sustainable. Uh, and there's no payoffs in the sense that uh, there's no job security? No, well, that's right. Uh, rolling six-term contracts, so I just spoke to someone this morning, uh, he's been working here for about six or seven years in the same job. <laughs> But I think he's had uh, about two or three, three or four uh, fixed-term contracts. In one of our areas, there are a number of teachers on rolling one-year fixed-term contracts. And that means they have no holiday pay, they have no sick leave, they have none of the things that people always believed uh, made being a professional uh, something worth being. Uh, it means that the most stressful time of the year for most of us is Christmas. Uh, every Christmas they have to worry about 
whether they're coming back to a, to a job. Uh, and in fact, a woman I spoke to yesterday, she didn't find out that she had her new contract until the 28th of December. I'm not sure people realise this, but doing the corrections is the thing that cripples a teacher. Uh, you're marking, yep. you know what you mean? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, this is it to the um, uh, number of, uh, well, a majority, I think, of teachers uh, in this year didn't get a break between first semester and second semester because the semesters are getting longer and more arduous uh, and they're kind of linking together. So first semester and second semester are linked together by, as you say, doing the marking. Do you get paid for marking? Uh, not everyone does. No. Um, in fact, a lot of the, some of the people I've been speaking to, um, they basically had to do the marking in their annual leave time. Uh, for casuals, they really have to... Sorry, sessionals on casual contracts. Uh, people on casual contracts uh, basically have to put forth a submission to get paid. Uh, and whether or not they get paid properly for the t- length of time they spent doing that marking really depends on the discretion of their manager. RMIT is actually making quite a, a profit, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's doing very well. <laughs> it's got a $1 billion turnaround each year, uh, and every year it announces uh, a bare minimum of $50 million profit. Uh, last year was a big year for RMIT. It made a $71 million profit. Uh, overall, it's a very successful uh organisation uh, with interests all around the world. Uh, so it's a very successful organisation, but um, apparently uh, vocational education teachers um, aren't allowed to get uh, their fair <laughs> part of that uh, success. So. so it sounds like the employers are expecting a free lunch. They really are. Uh, it's very sad to see a university behave like this. Uh, very sad indeed. So you guys are going to go on strike on uh, Thursday uh, this, of this week. Uh, what, what's the action? Can you tell us about that? Uh, what's the action? We've got a few uh, actions going on. We've um, got some bans uh, in place which are affecting sort of administrative and funding uh, streams at RMIT, which is um, uh, making them sit up and take notice. Uh, and then on this Thursday, we're on strike for 24 hours. There'll be a large picket uh, on Swanson Street, which is where RMIT is situated, RMIT in the CBD. And a lot of our university members are also going to come down and support the vocational education teachers. The workers united will never be defeated! The workers united will never be defeated! What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And when do you want it? Now. And what are you going to do to get it? Fight for it. What are you going to do? Fight for it. What are you going to do? Fight for it. What do you want? What do you want? That's it for today's Stick Together. Thanks to you for listening. We have to thank Anthony Main for New Night, Amadeo DePrano from Rail, Bus and Tram Union, and Dr Melissa Slee from National Tertiary Education Union for speaking to us today. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at stick.together at gmail.com or by calling 03 
9419 8377. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Catch you next time.